Let's just take a moment here to, to pray. <clears throat> God, we worship you this morning. We acknowledge you as, as wonderful, as awesome and powerful and glorious and yet choosing to be intimate and personal to us. And God, this morning as we look into your word, God, may this spirit of meeting with you, of um, entering into your presence and knowing you uh, continue. As we, we open your word, God, may your spirit be present here with us. May you open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to hear from you, that we would know more about who you are, know more about who we are in relation to you, and what you desire of us, and the good things that you have for us. Um, and God, uh, for what I say this morning, God, may it be anointed by you. May it come from you. If there's things that I say that are not from you, let them fall away. We invite you here. May you be glorified in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, this morning I got a bit of a sore throat, so hopefully I make it through. I got through the first service okay. I probably won't say much this afternoon after this. Um, but we've been working through this sermon series over the past few weeks called Nearest and Dearest, and, and it's taking a look at the book of John, at the Gospel of John, and exploring it from the perspective of the author of John, who, um, as Jesus' best friend, is Jesus' best friend, and we're asking the question, what does it look like for us to have Jesus as our best friend? What would it look like if we related to Jesus the way John um, is in relationship with Jesus? And we've, we've touched on a number of things. Um, uh, and what I would encourage everyone to do, and this is just kind of an aside here, but I would encourage you as we're working through this, read along. Take When you go home um, during the week, read along and, and, and read through the book of John. Read the whole thing because as we, we unpack these messages, um, they're just like little snippets out of there. And so this morning we're going to be, we're talking about one story out of John chapter 4, but there's a whole bunch more in there and there's a whole bunch more that, that we can get. And and so I just encourage you to, to read along and, and read the whole book of John. And there's a, there's a richness and a depth that comes with reading the whole passages and, and the whole section as we unpack these little small stories. And now we've come to John 4, and we have a very, very famous story um, in here. It's probably one of the most famous stories um, in the New Testament, and it's a story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty deep. There's a whole bunch going on here. There's a lot we can learn from it, and we're not going to look at it. Um, instead, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at the story that occurs right afterwards in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 53. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, turn to John 4, 43 through 53. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with one, there's some on the table at the back there. You can go grab one. Um, while you're turning there... Let's just take a quick look at the sweep of this story so far, of the story arc that John has laid out for us. And, and he begins in John 1, and he introduces us to Jesus, and Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, which is his home area. He grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. 
And then in John chapter 2, he travels to Jerusalem for Passover. And then we have the story that Pastor Scott uh, preached on a couple of weeks ago of, of him driving out the money changers and those who were selling animals for sacrifices in the temple. And he does some miracles there. And then we, we enter into John chapter 3, where Jesus has this meeting with Nicodemus. And uh, it's, it's pretty like life-changing for Nicodemus. And it kind of redefines how human beings are to relate with God for him and, uh, and, and, and for us. And um, Pastor Aaron preached on that last week. And then Jesus begins to travel back home to Galilee. And to go there, he goes through a place called Samaria. And he has this encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. And and for Jesus, I mean, Jesus was a a Jewish rabbi. He was a a Jewish teacher. And for him to then have this discussion, and he was alone. He'd left his disciples. I can't remember exactly. We're getting food or something like that. And and he went to the well. And um, so this is... This is outside of what a Jewish rabbi should and would do, right? I mean, he goes and he speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. I mean, one, he's speaking to a woman, um, and, the, and, and the second one is she's a Samaritan. And then Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They really, really did not like one another. And this is important, I promise, for the rest of the story. But, um, and, and Samaritans were uh, a people that were kind of um, a, a mix, a uh, of, of different, different ethnic groups. See, if, if you remember back to your Old Testament history, that uh, God settled uh, the Jews in the land of Israel, and then there was a division in it, and there's 10 northern tribes in Israel and two southern tribes in Judah, and they operated as two separate kingdoms for many years, and, and the northern tribes were disobedient to God, and they worshiped other gods, and they did all sorts of stuff, and, and God said, you got to stop this, you got to stop this, you have to stop doing this, and eventually he let... He, they sent a people group called the Assyrians in, and the Assyrians just like wiped them out and defeated them in battle. And when the Assyrians did that, is what they do is they would take the people that they conquered and they would spread them across their empire so that they could never rise up again. And so that's what they did. They took the Jews out of the north, out of Israel, and they spread them across their empire. And then they took other people from different places and they resettled them in Israel. And there were just a few Jews left and a bunch of these other people groups there. And the Jews who were left there intermarried with these other people groups and they took their religions and they took Judaism and they kind of mashed them together into this new sort of um, religion. And they had different beliefs, but they were kind of believed in God, but they, but they didn't believe in, in the true God, and they were not Orthodox Jews in that sense. They believed that God was to be worshipped not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim there, and, and, and the Jews could not stand them. They, they, they absolutely hated them. And what happens is Jesus has this encounter with this Samaritan woman, and they have this discussion, and it opens her eyes up to a new spiritual reality. And she goes and she gets her friends, and she's like, you got to come here, you got to hear from this guy. And they come, and they hear, and they talk to Jesus, and they like, all these people look, listen to Jesus, and they're like, you are the Messiah. And they believe, and Jesus spends a couple of days there with them and, and, and teaching them and speaking to them. And then we pick up the story right there after Jesus is finished with his two days speaking to the Samaritans and interacting with them. And so we're going to read now in John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judah, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. Right at the beginning of this, Jesus travels back to Galilee and he points out, John makes a, makes a very intentional point of saying that Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And now John is, is referring to something that actually is said in the book of Matthew, um, chapter 13, and the book of Luke, chapter 4. And the question that we need to ask ourselves as we start into this passage is, why would Jesus say that he is not honored? And why is it so important for John to mention this up front? Why, why does it matter for him to say this right at the beginning of this? And so to understand that, to really truly understand what's going on here, I think we need to look in uh, the book of Luke in chapter 4. Um, and Luke chapter 4 Starting in verse 14, this is a long passage, it's not, well, it's not that long, 14 to 30, but um, it's a longer passage, it's easy to follow though, and I think as we read it and like kind of unpack a little bit, a little bit of time unpacking this, it's going to give us some good insight into why John is writing what he is and why it's important for the rest of, of what John has to say. So Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his t- custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Just a quick little aside here. Um, in this time, when there, somebody was about to preach in a synagogue, they would actually sit down to do it. So Jesus has read from a passage, and now he is going to preach on this passage, so he sits down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Jesus' son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, 
but to a widow in a place I can't pronounce, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. When the people in the synagogue, or all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And I always wonder how Jesus walked through the crowd and went on his way. But that's a really great welcome home, right? Um, Welcome home, we're going to throw you off of a cliff. But in this, there are a few things, I think, that we can draw out to understand why Jesus says, and he says right in here, that a prophet is not honored in his own town or in his own country. In Luke chapter 4, here, verse 22, they all spoke well of him, and they were, we think, oh, that's, that's nice that they're speaking well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words come from his lips. But this here is the key, key few words here. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. See, what happened here is they're like, isn't this Joseph's son? Hang on, isn't he the carpenter's son? Didn't he build a barn for you last year? Right? There's a familiarity here. They're overly familiar with him. They believe they know him because he grew up among them. He grew up in Nazareth. And so they believe that they know who he really is. See, what it is is their ideas about who they thought Jesus was led them to miss who Jesus really is. So the idea about who they thought who Jesus was led them to miss who Jesus really is. So they were overly familiar with him, and this blinded them to the truth about who he really was. Not only were they overly familiar with him, they were unwilling to allow him to challenge their beliefs and their attitudes. And we see this in verses 24 through 28. Because of their attitude towards him, isn't this the carpenter's son? They're unwilling to let him challenge them. Jesus tells the truth, and he illustrates it with two Old Testament stories. The gist of this being, the, the core of this being, that people are always ready, more ready to see greatness and to hear truth from strangers than from those they know well. That's what Jesus is saying here in this, this story about Elijah and the story about Elisha. He's saying, you know, people, you're, you're willing to hear truth from strangers, but you really don't want to hear it from people that you know well or you think you know well. Now, we know this. If you're a parent, you really know this. I was listening to CBC uh, radio a couple of weeks ago when it was really, really cold. And they had this psychologist on the radio. And the psychologist, they were interviewing the psychologist and they were asking him questions about how do you get your kids to dress for the cold? When it's really cold outside, kids are like, I don't need gloves, it's only minus 32. You know? And no, no, you need gloves. No, I don't. I'm, it's not very far to school. My fingers won't freeze. You know? And there's a story in Edmonton that happened at that time where a girl didn't wear her mitts. She walked home about 45 minutes and she got severe frostbite in her fingers. So they were interviewing this psychologist and they're saying, how do you communicate well with your kids? How do you get them to wear this stuff? And how do you, you know, I mean, once they've gone out the door, how do you make sure that they don't take that stuff off or when they come home, come home from school that they actually put the clothes on that they took with them? And the psychologist said, well, it's basically a lost cause because children don't listen to their parents. He said, this is, we all know this. In fact, he says, what, who they do listen to is people who they don't know as well. If a teacher says it, the kid's like, oh, I never thought of it like that before. And the parent's like, 
I've been telling you this, and the psychologist said he told a story. He said, I was, he said I, was, I was in therapy. I was counseling this, this, these parents and this child. And he said, I said something to the child, and the child was like, I never thought of this before. And the parents said, we've been telling you this for months. How did you not hear us? And he said, because people have blind spots when it comes to those that they are too familiar with. And their blind spots in Jesus, the, the Nazarenes, um, blind spots, because they thought they, were, they, were, they knew him, their blind spots didn't allow them to be challenged by Jesus. He couldn't speak to them with a word that would challenge them. And so they hear this story, and he tells them this story. And there's, there's a few really core key, or these two stories, a few key elements in these stories. One that's really, really important for us to understand is when he tells the story, he tells a story of there are two prophets, two stories, one prophet in each story. And God does something through the prophets, does miracles, but he doesn't do it for Jews. Just the one second story, Elisha the prophet. There's a Naaman who is a Syrian general. He has leprosy. It is a terrible disease that he couldn't get rid of, didn't know what to do. And he comes to Israel and he says to Elisha the prophet, can you heal me of this leprosy? And, and the short end of the story is, yes, he is healed of the leprosy. And Jesus said, do you think there were no lepers in Israel at the time? See, they don't want to hear because you're too familiar with the prophets and you're unwilling to hear from them what God actually has to say to them. So God does things for other people that you miss. And the Jews are, the, the people in the synagogue are furious. How dare you say that? How dare you say that God's favor rests on people other than us? How dare you say that God's favor rests on people other than the Jews? God chose us. We are God's people. We are the Jews, his chosen people. He took us out of Egypt. We've got all this story. How dare you say that? And Jesus is challenging them and they hate it. And so they try and kill him. They're too tangled up in their own beliefs about who God was, what he did, and who he cared about to see what he was really, who he really was, what he was really doing, and he really cared about all people. So they decide to kill him, to get rid of the person who's challenging their beliefs. In addition to these things, in addition to these two things, they're also looking for the spectacular. John chapter 4, verse 45. When he arrived in Galilee, Galileans welcomed him they had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. John connects this, this little story here, to belief in verse 48. He says, unless you, see, you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. So he's saying, unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. They, they welcome him to Galilee because he, they've seen, they know he's done miraculous signs and wonders. Something really interesting happens in chapter 2 um, that, that pertains to this here. In, in John chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 23, um, Jesus has cleared the temple. He's engaged with the Jewish leaders. And then this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. 
So he did these miracles. These are the ones that are referred back to in John chapter 4, where they're like, hey, we saw you do miracles. Welcome, show us more. And so he's done these miracles, and people believe in him, it says here in John chapter 2. But what's really interesting is Jesus does not trust himself to them because he knew all people. And in, the, in, in verse 25, he knew what was in a man. Jesus knew what people were like, and he knew people's hearts, and he could read their hearts. And he knew that our tendency as people, as human beings, is to go from one high to another, to seek out the spectacular, to seek out the engaging. And all of these things, this overfamiliarity, this unwillingness to be challenged, and this looking for the spectacular... They're all for the Galileans. They're all for the people. What they're looking for is, is Jesus, do something for us. Amaze us. Show us something wonderful, something that we've never seen before, something that we could tell our grandchildren about. I remember when we saw Jesus do, insert random miracle. And now we move on to the royal official who, at the first glance in here, seems actually quite familiar. After all, he's looking for a miracle as well, right? I mean, we read the story. He says, Jesus, my son's sick. Heal my son. Give me a miracle, is what he seems to be asking for. But let's unpack what, this, what is really going on here. First thing is, he does is it says he traveled to Jesus. Oh. Um, it says there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee for Judah, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son. So this royal official in Capernaum, uh, it's, it's uh, down on the lake. Um, Jesus is up in the hill country somewhere, and, and he's, he hears that Jesus has arrived. Now, there are no telephones. There is no internet. There is no email. There is no instant communication. The only way news gets around is when people walk somewhere and tell other people. Okay, so communication is slow, really slow as to what we're used to. So this royal official, his son is dying. Here's word. This miracle worker, Jesus, who did these miracles in Jerusalem, this miracle worker, Jesus, and oh, by the way, he turned water into wine. Um, He is somewhere up around Nazareth somewhere. He grew up there, so he's probably up there somewhere. And he decides, I need to go find this Jesus character. I need to find him and ask him to do something. So he travels um, about the same distance as it would be from Lethbridge to McGrath. And he walks there, probably most likely walked there. Maybe he had a donkey and he could ride the donkey. Either way, it's going to take a long time to get there. This is a significant commitment that he is making, particularly in light of the fact that his son is dying. And he has no guarantee that he will even find Jesus, let alone if he finds Jesus, that Jesus is able to actually, because he doesn't really know who Jesus is. He's not sure that Jesus is actually able to heal his son and or that Jesus is even willing to heal his son. And he doesn't know where Jesus is, somewhere there. And he gets up and he goes and he leaves his dying child. His need was so great. And his his belief, he's like, something, God can do something. Jesus can do something. He leaves his dying son to go to the one he heard may have been able to help. In addition to his willingness to go to Jesus... He's persistent. He finds Jesus, 
after traveling, I don't know how long it took. I mean, if I was to walk straight to McGrath, it'd probably take me most of a day. And, and this is uphill in like little rocky trails and stuff like that. I mean, there's no highway I can, he can walk beside or anything like that. So, so he's managed to get there. It may have taken him a day. Maybe it took him longer. Maybe he went to the wrong place and they said, oh, he's over here or whatever. You know, so he finally finds Jesus and he says to Jesus, my son, my child is sick. Come Come with me and heal him. And Jesus blows him off. Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now put yourself in this guy's shoes. He's traveled all this distance. He's come all this way and he's, you know, he's tired probably and he's like grieving because he's not even sure his son is still alive and he gets there and the miracle worker who talks about how good God is and how God loves people tells him all you want is a sign and you're not going to believe. And he doesn't get frustrated. I'd get very frustrated. He's a story. He doesn't get frustrated. He responds. The royal official said, verse 49, right after Jesus said that, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's persistent. He sticks with it. He says, no, I, just do, I, you, I believe you can do something. Please come with me and do something. And then he's trusting. Jesus replied, you may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. How much faith do you think that took? He, Jesus is like, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. Your son's going to be better. You know, head off. And he leaves. And he's like, okay, Jesus, I'll trust you. And he, and, and, and he, and he goes. See, his, his thing all along has been, Jesus, if you would just come to Capernaum, I know that you could do something if you were right there. And Jesus' his answer is almost dismissive. And, and, and the man takes Jesus at his word despite all the difficulty wrapped up in that. And this is where the royal official's belief is different from the Galileans. See, they were looking for a sign to believe. If you give us a sign... We will believe. The royal official believed before he saw the sign. In fact, he took Jesus at his word. Jesus said, go, your son will be healed. He left to walk over a day's travel home, trusting that his son would be healed. See, all of these things, this willingness to travel, willingness to step away from where he wanted to be to go to where Jesus was, a willingness to be persistent in seeking out Jesus, even when it didn't seem like Jesus wanted to answer him even, and his trust and his desire or willingness to take Jesus at his word put Jesus at the center for him, not himself. That's, that's a huge difference from the Galileans. There was miracles involved, but the miracle wasn't really what mattered. What mattered was the fact that he took Jesus at his word. Through all of this, there's a third character in this story. We've had the, the Galileans who are just looking for a sign. We've got the royal official who, who just wants his son healed. And we have Jesus. And in this story, the character of Jesus is revealed. Jesus is shown as being compassionate. 
Where there is a genuine need, Jesus is compassionate. The royal official's son is dying, and Jesus meets this need, not in a way that he would like, probably not in a way that we would like if we were in, in the royal official's shoes. But he is compassionate towards him, and he does meet the need, and he meets it freely. Notice there are no conditions put upon it. Jesus just says, go, your son will be healed. He didn't say, go and believe in me that I am the Messiah, and your son will be healed. There was none of those things. He just, just was compassionate. It was just a pouring out of his love for people, and he just says, go, your son will be healed. I care about you enough to do this. And Jesus is powerful. See, he has the ability to do something that nobody else can do. Nobody else heals, let alone heals from a distance of whatever it is, 30 kilometers. I don't think it mattered whether it was 30 kilometers or 3,000 kilometers, right? Jesus is powerful. He has the ability and demonstrates the ability in this that his word is simply enough to change a life. In this story, as we've gone through it and we've kind of taken it apart here, John is starting to pull themes, and he's pulling these themes through previous things that Jesus has said and done. There's a story of death to life. The son is going to die unless Jesus does something. Just back one page, we have John, or sorry, Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, and he says this, and this is, this is the most famous passage in all of Scripture, John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And, Je- and John, as he's writing this, pulls this theme. And he says, look, this is what God is about. This is what God is about. God is compassionate. And his compassion is so deep that his desire is to move people from death into life. And he also, there's this other theme here that John pulls, and he pulls it from right before this story with these Samaritans. And, he, and, and it's this, is that he calls us, and, and we are to take Jesus at his word. See, John chapter 4, verse 41, this is right at the end of Jesus' time of the Samaritans, it says, and because of his words, many more, many more Samaritans, many more became believers. They believed Jesus, because of what he said, not what he did. That's really critical, really, really critical. See, that's what God's desire is, I think, and what, what John is trying to say through this story is that, that God wants to move people from death to life. He wants to do new things. He wants to be gracious and loving towards us, and he wants to be compassionate and powerful and all of those things, but God expects and desires from us that we would take him at his word, that we would trust him where, where he says we should trust him. He wants the, the, the official son, or the, the official rather, sorry, he wants the official to, look, to believe him at his word and not look for the miracle. It's not miracles that God wants us to put our trust in. He doesn't want us to look for the spectacular. Those things are great, and God does them. We all enjoy it when we have great worship, and God just, I don't, something seems to happen, and, and right here, and we, we respond to God, and we leave church, and we're like, man, wasn't that worship great? Wasn't, or wasn't that sermon wonderful? Or, or, or whatever it is, I feel so engaged by God. Or we want Jesus to, or God to do, 
Jesus God, to do some miracle in our lives or to bring healing or to hear a story of some miracle that he did. or all of Those things are all great and they're all wonderful and they're all true that God does that, but it's not those things that God wants us to put our trust in. He wants us to put our trust in him and what he says, not in the spectacular. John is writing this from the perspective of being Jesus' best friend. His nearest and dearest, that's what we're calling it in this sermon series. But at the same time, John is writing about Jesus being fully God. That's the other theme in the book of John, right? Jesus is God. And he is powerful enough not only to heal a boy from 40 kilometers away, but to restore us into relationship with God. He is someone whose word is to be trusted, if we desire to be Jesus' best friend, if we desire to have that deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, we must take him at his word. Let go of our own agenda. Let go of what we think God should do, what we think the plans should be for the future, and instead say, God, what is it that you would have us do? Where would you see us go? What, what plans do you have for us? And some of those are going to be like, go, your son will be healed, but why don't you come with me because then I can see it. And he says, no, 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 just, just go. It's going to be okay. And the royal official stepped out into the unknown, trusting and taking Jesus at his word. And that's what God desires for us, for us to let go of our plans for what we want and instead to step out into the unknown, trusting what God has for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is... Uh, challenging story, but in some ways it's easy to talk about this. It's much harder to put this into practice and reality. And so God, as, as we talk about this idea of, of trusting you and not looking for the spectacular, but instead taking you at your word, um, God, we ask for the faith to trust you. We, we, we set ourselves up with the man in, in Mark chapter 9 who, when you said to him that, that, that anything can be done if, if people have enough faith, and he said, I, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. And so God, help us with our unbelief. Fill us with your spirit so that we could trust you more deeply. We could take you at your word and step out in faith into who you would have us be and what you would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen.